Ugh, what's that smell? Oh, that's the in the corner back by the wood pile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 117, I began telling the story of my study of the Chinese wisdom tradition, Taoism, and the adventures it led me to in the great country of its origin. I'm calling it the Tao of, weren't we supposed to turn back there? That story was inserted in between my ramblings on the history and thinking of Lao Tzu, his Tao Te Ching, and some of the old master's philosophical descendants as well, all of which I've got more word nuggets to bore you with. If you didn't hear that episode, I would go back and listen to it first because you'll nearly be as lost as I was in the Middle Kingdom. But if you did and you need reminding, I was having the worst luck for various reasons getting to all these significant Taoist locations in China. Also, my buddy Mac Daddy McWilliams was and is in the house as I tell my tale for moral support and comic relief of sorts. And my friend Vic is reading some of the passages from the Taoist text. All that out of the way, let's get to it. The world in general prefers similarity of appearance to that of intelligence. We love and get close to those who are similar to us in appearance. We fear and keep at a distance from those who are different from us in outer looks. Lietze. Next up in the Dao Zhao Who's Who is Lietze, also known as Lai Yukao. He hailed from a place called Zheng, living and doing his thing without any fame during the Warring States period, was the disciple of a handful of wise men before writing his treatise on the Dao. And just like with Lao Tzu, there were a few wild stories tagged on by Dao Zhao embellishers, the most well-known being that Lietze had learned how to fly presumably without machinery or jet fuel. Whether what version of Lietze we have today is the original seems dubious. Most great manuscripts, the Bible included, find themselves being edited, editorialized, and added to over the years, and the Lietze is no exception. (coughs) 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 Terrible. You okay? Yeah. Scholars believe that the accepted official version of the book was drawn from various pre-existing works, which included pre-Chin Dynasty classics, some Buddhist texts, and some stories told involving Confucius. This doesn't necessarily need to be seen as plagiarism, but rather in the tradition of using a well-known story or proverb to further the point trying to be made by the author. What's great? Ah, dang it. Sorry. I don't think that's in there. <laughs> I t- uh, I'm, for folks at home, I'm using my iPad to read off of, and I, I'm a little bit ham-fisted. <laughs> uh, what's great about Lienza, to me, is that it's chock full of stories. There's no point in trying to include them all here, but I'll share a few. Uh, here's one. Yangju stated, quote, As the saying goes, there is mutual care when alive and mutual abandonment after death. Mutual care is not just affection, but also the offering of rest for the hardworking, food for the hungry, clothing for the cold, opportunity for the frustrated. Mutual abandonment doesn't just mean absence of sorrow. It means denying a pearl in the mouth, fancy threads on your body, 
and expensive trinkets buried with you in the grave. By the way, the phrase about the pearl in the mouth, it kind of confounded me a little bit. I thought, what does that mean? And uh, so I sent a message to one of my friends in China and asked about that. The way he explained it was kind of the apple of your eye, maybe the thing that you valued the most. And he said, in, generally in China, what was referred to as the pearl in the mouth was usually the daughter, the daughter that the family just cherished. I thought maybe it was like literal that like they'd put a pearl in their mouth when they died. I don't know. Don't some places put coins in their mouth? or? Well, I've always seen coins over the eyes. Do you know what that means? Well, that's money for the uh, for the ferryman and the river sticks mm. is what I've heard. Well, instead of putting it in their eyes, won't they put it in their hands so they can give it to the guy? Yeah, uh, it's a little inconvenient place, don't you think? Yeah, well, I can think of worse places to stick it. <laughs> Word. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the second little thing from Lieza. There was a traveling man named Yuan Jingmu, whose belly was hurting from hunger. Somewhere along the way, a thief named Chu shared some of his rice gruel with a hungry traveler. At some point in their conversations, Yuan Jingmu realized that his host was a famous thief and declared, I can't eat the food of a robber. In trying to expel the food from his stomach, Yang Jingmu ended up choking to death. Sure, Chu was a thief, but his food wasn't to blame. And the third one I want to give. Vigongza said to Shimenza, You and I are of the same generation, clan and looks, use the same words, are both farmers, engage in the same business dealings. You make fun of me, act haughty in front of others, and you don't associate with me anymore. And yet, you are influential, respected, loved, trusted, rich, while I am poor, wear tattered clothes, eat coarse food, and regarded as worthless by the people. We are equals, and yet you get to look down on me. Insulted, Shimenza replied, We are not equals. Our different circumstances are the result of our differing morality. A wise man named Donghua heard about the incident and declared, Both of your present circumstances are because of fate, of which is often out of our control. Shimenza feels superior because of his luck, while Begongza feels ashamed because of his virtue. Begongza apologized and promised to say no more about the disparity between he and Shimenza. And from then on, Begongza wore his tatters as if they were as warm as fur coats, ate his soybeans as if they were fine and delicious, and lived in his hut as if it were a mansion. For the rest of his life, he was content, unaware of where glory and shame were. Which category do you fall in, do you feel? Do I believe in fate? Yeah. I think it has a little bit to do with it. Like there's certain things like no matter what you do, it's not going to work out the way you want. Right. I think it just depends on your ability. I just don't like this thing they have going around that telling kids that, you know, if you just work hard enough, you can do whatever you want. Well, not everyone's going to be a brain surgeon, no matter what they do. Right, right. I think that's just, that's the wrong thing to say to kids. I guess it's better than saying sit on your hands and wait for something to fall on your lap. My thing is just, you know, try the best you can. Well, about this story... Not that I've ever been so poor as to have worn tattered clothes and lived in a hut, but as I write this, I have a car that won't start when it rains, the problem having confounded four different mechanics, and I can't afford another automobile with less aquaphobia to replace it. And it's not the first time I've gotten myself so close to destitution that I've wondered what of my own actions have landed me in this position. I know all kinds of other folks who, as far as I know never get in these messes and have nice things on top of that. Now, granted, some of the more successful 
are indeed immoral jerks, but also there's a few winners that have helped me out when I didn't ask for any help, nor did I tell them I was in one of my pickles. So when I hear this story and other tales Lietza gives to explain that sometimes the rain falls on the poor and rich people's cars alike, I of course want to cling to the hope that I am a nice righteous guy who is just fated to slosh to work in the rain sometimes. Given that I've never had to eat out of the garbage, I am thankful for what little I have. And in fact, I giggle a lot to myself about much of my misfortune because there's something pretty hilarious about having to ask random strangers to put their finger over a hole in your car's engine so it will start. Yet another phenomenon that sometimes plagues my car. So I've got the contentment part pretty much down. But I wonder about myself sometimes. See, I know a lot of other dudes who can't keep a job because they have an aversion to showing up on time, like to grant themselves five-finger discounts, keep a cloud of stink wafting around their private parts, blow any money that ever darkens their palms on weed and beer, but who would also read a story like this one and declare, Dude, I'm totally begongza, fated to be kept down by the man. And if those late stinky thieves are oblivious to their own self-sabotage, how do I know I'm not smoking the same denials rolled in delusions that they are? I don't know. That's why I'm asking y'all listening to this now. If I am my own worst enemy, I need to know. Am I? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think, in a general sense, are you your own worst enemy? Uh, Yes, with my aversion to work. (laughs) (laughs) But you're not sucking off the teat of the government. Yeah. No, I would never do that. As a matter of fact, I think I pride myself on never having to be a burden to the government or my family. Right. And I don't know what would happen if I were got in a situation where I had to be like met like you know if I were start running into a bunch of medical problems or right. something. That's the only thing I can think of that would cause that to happen. Right. For folks listening, you're sometimes employed and sometimes not. Well that's only what happened in the last couple of years. But you I mean I've always been employed since, you know, I was in the Navy. And you save your money. You yeah. Don't. I mean I've I've been pretty good with investing money. You so don't blow it on meth? Not anymore. <laughs> Seven days sober. <laughs> um <laughs> I wouldn't have done what I did. You know, I took a year and a half sabbatical. If I had a wife and kids, that would never have happened. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be responsible for someone else. Right. Well, the situation I'm in, I'm only responsible for me. So I only hurt myself. Right. The five tastes spoiled the palate. Excess of hunting and chasing makes the mind go mad. Products that are hard to get impede the owner's movements. Tao Te Ching, Chapter 12. I don't know what I was after by starting my quest in the first place. Being raised in the Wesleyan vein of Christianity, you're taught to be wary of false idols, icons, relics, and other trinkets that distract from the real meaning of the faith. The church I went to was built in the 1970s, so nothing in it was older than me. And even though I'm totally fascinated with people out there hunting for Lost Blues 78 records, the Ark of the Covenant, or the petrified big toe of of Saint Sissy Face, I know those are ultimately just mortal things that will never be as important as the immortal ideas behind them. Plus in China, finding anything cool and old is not as easy as as you'd think. Again, considering the communist aversion to tradition, religion, or anything else that contradicts their worldview, 
It's estimated that 90% of China's temples, literature, art, and so on were destroyed during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. That's why today's museums are either remarkably bare or full of forgeries for a civilization that has 6,000 years of history. I went to one museum near Xi'an where the supposedly ancient relics displayed behind glass or on pedestals look remarkably like the tourist souvenirs on sale in the gift shop. Upon inquiry, the curator of the museum admitted that yes, all the items in the building, whether they were in a reverently lighted display or were placed for sale next to the keychains and, and terracotta teddy bears, were only a few months old. I'd wager you'd find more interesting relics and older relics in a silly putty museum in the States than you would in most Chinese museums, as that there is not much left there older than the 1980s, which is when the country started to rebuild itself after Chairman Mao's insane rule. But back to what I was looking for. When I've went through my several crises of existence, I've always ended up trying to boil down what's the quantum of what brings me happiness. What I've found is that a good story is worth more to me than gold or good food. The epics from the Old Testament, Jesus' parables, the myths of the Greeks, the pub yarns of Irish fireside chatterer Eamon Kelly, or the Cherokee origin tales, my dad's self-deprecating stories about his faulty bowels, and so on. To this day, I still recite the many tales I've picked up, sometimes to my friends or on walks or students in my classes. And the Taoists are full of stories. Wisdom sayings and poetry, too, ranks up there for me. Every once in a while, I stumble across some quote that shows me how to get around a painful mental trap with myself or in my dealings with others. Again, these kinds of gems are in full bloom in Taoist pages. But one might ask, why leave one's library then? With the main Dao Jia texts preserved well enough in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and wherever else the Chinese diaspora had went, and Chairman Mao's reach didn't, what did I expect to find that hadn't already been found? Well, maybe something lost and still not found. For Judaism and Christianity, there was the Dead Sea Scrolls found by a shepherd boy who was throwing stones into a cave nearly 2,000 years after anybody had seen him last. And then with Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity, there's always been whispered rumors of the, quote, secret teachings, of which were only given to the most trusted of students and supposedly were never written down, or if so, very much closely guarded. Whether this actually is true for Taoism or not, if there was even the faintest possibility that there was a secret album the Beatles had recorded and had hidden somewhere in the sewers of Liverpool, wouldn't most of us at least go try to have a look for it? So there's that. Still, discoveries of things lost have their downsides. In Christian history, there are many allusions by the early church fathers and theologians to Gospels we've no surviving copies of, supposedly penned by such figures as Thomas the Twin, Judas Iscariot, and Dulcephus the Sugar-Trousered One. I made that one up. <laughs> There were those who claimed that some kingdom establishing revelation uh, was certainly contained in them that would change the course of history if refound. Others claimed that they would contain heresies that would deceive humanity even further off the right path. Well, guess what? They finally found a lot of those lost gospels, the Judas one having been sitting unidentified and deteriorating in a safety deposit box in New York City for years, to name one. And at least in this guy's opinion, they could lose them all again. Here's a paraphrase from one of the lost gospel texts. Those who know where the light switch is shall not stumble. 
unless of course the light switch is on the other side of the room, at which one might trip over the coffee table and fall face first into the plate glass before reaching the light switch. Well, that's probably an oversimplification, again from my point of view, but that's how I at least remember most of those found nuggets went like. And Judas wrote that? <laughs> yeah, he knew about light switches. Really? No, that was actually, I was paraphrasing one of the Gospels of Thomas. There's different ones of Gospels of Thomas, and one of them is obsessed with light, and it just goes on and on and on. And I, I remember trying to get through it, and I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with the light. Someone turn the light off, please. <laughs> So part of me hoped that there was some lost stories or text or living louses that I and my uncarved clodhopper essence could discover that would enhance both me and the world's comprehension of Taoism. Still, I had to prepare myself that more than likely my dreams of becoming the Indiana Jones of the Tao Jia were slum to none. Also, if by chance, I got extremely fortunate and opened a tomb of a previously unknown guy with the last name of Tzu, I had to anticipate that I wouldn't be content. Even though most of those lost books of Judaism and Christianity got found, soon some other mystery was whispering in the scholar and archaeologist's ears, and off they went happy hunting again. And I'm with them. Regardless of what anyone has tried to tell me, the tinglys one feels when one is in pursuit of something is still wonderful to me. The journey, the chase, the unknown, the hidden, the forbidden... As humans, we seem to be a species where part of us run around hiding things, keeping secrets, and forming organizations not just anyone can be in. The other part of us is always digging through ancient dumpsters, peeking in windows, and making up theories on what the clubs that won't let us in must be up to. The rest of humanity seems that they could care less about either group and are wonderfully content, and ironically, inadvertently get one of the tenets of Taoism. This is from uh, the Tao Te Ching. And even though... The next country is so close that people can hear its roosters crowing and its dogs barking. They are content to die of old age without ever having gone to see it. But dang, I find this contented crowd mind-bruisingly boring. So am I caught up in some kind of Sisyphusian task? Maybe. Probably. But I'm naturally a curious fool, always investigating noises in the attic and sticking my hands into hissing holes. It's how I was wired. Now, maybe I'm climbing up the cherry-picking ladder here, but if Jesus commands, quote, "...ye shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and of all your mind," and Psalms 19.1 says, quote, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of His hands," while later in 111.2, or colon 2, it observes, quote, "...great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them," unquote. Well, no wonder a map fits so well on my hands and track shoes feel right nice on my feet. Nothing feels forced there. Not to say that I haven't tried to force things in my life. In fact, I used to try to force myself into staying tethered into one spot, work a normal job, and be like everyone else doing the same. It was then, I believe, that I was going against my inborn nature. I was miserable and became a bit of a misery-sowing jerk. Maybe Lao Tzu, the guy who traveled a ton, was trying to help us avoid some misery he found in the never-ending search. I get that, especially given how pained my heart feels by all the brother, sister, kindred spirits, the kind that the first time they look in your eyes you've already known them for hundreds of years, I've left behind in some many towns all over this planet. I'll be sure to ask Lao Tzu when I catch up with him. The difference between a mediocre person 
and one of genius is that the former only sees what's in front of him, but the latter sees what was a thousand years before him and a thousand years after him. Shir Kuang checks the bells. Back to Megan's village and the Tao that seemed to show itself to us. A happenstance conversation with the cab driver taking Megan and I back to the city. Uh, in that conversation, the man told me about this particular mountain where Lao Tzu has supposedly lived, taught, or was born at one. That was something, and Megan, knowing my heart's desire, said she would begin working to figure out how to get me to that mountain. Before that attempt would occur, a few months passed, and a new person entered my life. That came about because of a series of events set off by the worst group of students I had at the university. You see, a lot of students in China don't really have to do anything to graduate at a major university in the country if their parents are rich or high up in the Communist Party. No matter how bad their grades are or their lack of involvement, they will graduate because of string pulling and red envelopes filled with cash. So, in that one bad class, most of the students just jack jaw or played with their phones, ignoring my lectures and refusing to participate. One afternoon, I became so incensed because my voice hurt from trying to teach over the clatter of their babbling away with each other, I just closed the textbook, proclaimed that they were the reason that China was falling apart, and walked out. Word got back to the administration, and at the next class session, a dean lambasted the students for embarrassing the nation by their disrespect for the poor foreigner who had left a virtual paradise to help their struggling country. The woman apologized to me and then invited me to go on a trip with some of her family and friends that coming weekend. I said, sure, and off to some beautiful Chinese mountains we went. Among the friends of the dean was a mid-20-year-old girl with the English name of Angela, who was the sister of the dean's best friend. Angela's English was actually better than the dean's, and we hit it off if, for anything, we could communicate. She was pretty, but I wasn't interested in her romantically, my heart being tangled up with another girl I had met a month before. So we ended up exploring the wilderness and climbing one of the smaller mountains, getting lost, but eventually getting found by a local farmer. We returned the next Sunday afternoon to the city, and after being home about an hour, I got a call from a crying Angela. She was pleading with me to tell her sister, who didn't speak English, that we hadn't done anything inappropriate on the mountain. So I had to learn how one says in Mandarin that we didn't have sex or kiss or anything. The sister believed me, and later that evening, Angela came over to explain what had happened. Come to find out, the dean had had designs on me, and became infuriated when Angela and I ran off on our explorations. When we all got home, the dean told the sister that she had evidence that Angela and I had made sweet international love in the woods, or something like that. After my claiming the opposite to Angela's sister, the whole family marched over to the dean's home to demand to know the truth, and she finally confessed that she had made up the lie out of jealousy. Well, the sister then ended her friendship with the dean and began inviting me over to the family's apartment for meals and outings. We all became quite close, and long story short, I let go of the other girl I had been interested in, and Angela and I began to date. Some weeks later, when the sisters took me to their home village to meet their mother, the poor matriarch had to sit down. She was so traumatized by not only meeting a foreigner for the first time in her life, but also at being informed I was dating one of her daughters. This was the first trouble in our paradise, and in time we had to let the whole idea of us go. But Angela's family and I stayed just as close as before, and because of the breakup had brought so much relief to the mother, the old woman began sending me big bags of delicious fried noodles, I think in gratitude. So back to the Taoist mountain quest. The day came when Megan had planned a trip for us to go via a country bus. The morning we were supposed to leave, Angela happened to call me to see what I was doing that day. 
When she found out about our plans, she volunteered, My sister has a car. I can drive you there. This was an appealing alternative to a slow, smelly old bus full of people sitting on top of each other and clinging to their cages of ducks. Halt, we said, which translates as word. <laughs> but enter the phenomenon of the little emperor. Because of the one-child policy, the children born recently in China are spoiled to no end because parents and grandparents are frightened that these children might turn on them when they get older. Keep in mind, two and three generations depend almost entirely financially and physically on the younger generations. All to say, Angela brought her nephew along, whom understandably didn't want to go see someplace where some old dead man might have visited once. So by the time she reached Megan and I to pick us up, the plans had changed, so now we were going to a completely different mountain, having nothing to do with Lao But on the other hand, they offered as a consolation, it was full of monkeys. I was disappointed, of course, but one must, quote, allow oneself to be bent or one will break, unquote, says the Tao. And sometimes the disappointment is better than the expectation. The first sign of excitement was at the foot of the mountain, there was an old lady selling big whacking sticks. We passed on buying any initially, but in time we were running back down to get some. And I'll tell you why. The monkeys. These little jerks were super aggressive in attacking humans, good and evil alike, and stealing what tasty goodies we might have had tucked away in our pockets and handbags. We, and I mean everybody there, visitors and the police, had to beat the monkeys back with the big sticks just to keep what few possessions we had left. One monkey snatched Megan's purse, ran down a hill, turned the thing upside down looking for treats. He broke her sunglasses in half and hissed at the poor girl because the only thing edible she had in there was chapstick. Unless you can eat a maxi pad, which the monkeys might try giving their promising colorful candy-like packaging. <laughs> Anyway, being the opportunist creatures that they are, the monkeys next targeted the youngest and most vulnerable amongst us and repeatedly attacked and robbed the little emperor nephew of all his drinks and food. He screamed in terror the entire trip, and I ashamedly covered my mouth and grinned real big since he had hijacked my original plans. Angela felt a little bad, I guess, about the hijacking and so volunteered for us to try again to go to the original destination on another day. So a few weeks later, I woke up, got dressed, and waited outside. And I waited for a long time, but no one ever showed up. I couldn't reach the girl on the phone, and so went back in and just went with the flushing down of my hopes. Some weeks later, some friends and I got together, and Angela was there. She never brought that day up, so neither did I. That's the Chinese way. Must have had her reasons, I figured. So later, I told one of the children I tutored named Sophia about my Taoist mishaps thus far, and the girl's mom and her got to talking and decided to try themselves to drive me to this elusive mountain. Well, we got there, and it was a mountain with a Taoist temple on top all right, but it was the wrong one, in that we learned Lao Tzu had never stepped either of his feet there. We still had a great time, and I ended up having a great conversation with some priests that lived on the super high mountain you had to climb a million steps to, although they actually were more interested in asking me about life in America and smartphones than helping me understand what actionless activity might possibly mean. The Tao is empty. When utilized, it is not filled up. Deep it is, unfathomable, like the ancestor of all beings. It blunts the sharpness, unravels the knots, dims the glare, mixes the dust of the world. So indistinct, it seems to exist. I do not know whose offspring it is. Dadajin, Chapter 4. Speaking of monkeys, Zhuangzi has this story about some monkeys whom their master 
because of his diminishing circumstances, reduced their feed to three nuts in the morning and four in the afternoon. They complained angrily that this wasn't enough nuts to sustain them, so the master began giving the monkeys four nuts in the morning and three in the afternoon. And with this amount, the monkeys were now quite content. I never really thought this to be one of the more clever of Zhuang's stories. That is, until I was reflecting on my short stint as a businessman and the nature of the consumer. Before I went to China, I had a record shop and a movie rental place, and one of my vows was to not insult the intelligence of the customer. Thus, I had no sales. I just marked everything down to the lowest price I could afford right off the bat, and so everyone would get the best price whenever they wanted. Several times, people would still ask when I was going to have a sale, and I would point out that if they compared the prices with the other media shops in town, I consistently had the lowest prices. So why would I need a sale? Well, I had the shop for four years or so, and it paid for itself in that I was able to settle its bills, but I never could pay myself. There were some other factors in play, but simply put, I became tired and wore out at not really getting anywhere financially. So I decided to close the joint down. I gave myself two weeks to close her up, and at opening the shop one afternoon, I put up the sad little going out of business sign. And then something amazing and sickening happened. People, both loyal customers and total strangers, started pouring into the shop and buying everything in sight. And what was messed up to me about this was that I hadn't even had time to mark down the prices yet. Nothing had changed price-wise, but folks were excited and seemingly couldn't wait to give me their money for stuff that had been sitting there collecting dust for months, if not since the day the place had opened. Then, I had made a sign that read that all the rental DVDs could be bought for $10 a pop. Well, in the rental room was a shelf of DVDs that had been on sale for a while, of which were tagged at various prices all under $10, some as low as $3. I pulled all their stickers off, but before I could mark them down even more, I got interrupted by some customer asking some questions, and then ended up manning the register for the remainder of the evening. Well, as I sat up there, folks started bringing up some of the DVDs I had just pulled the stickers off of, and now they were very eager to pay $10 for. I couldn't believe it. It was then that I realized why I was going out of business. Some years later, I was with a girlfriend in a department store. She there, very eager to use some coupons she had. In a moment of cynicism, I sneered, you know they mark the prices up and then issue a coupon to make you think you're getting a good deal, right? The girl smiled. Sure I know that, she said. I'm not stupid. It's just a game. Now stop trying to ruin the fun of it. <laughs> and so there it was. Zhuang's is monkeys and our nuts. To realize when one doesn't know what's going on is best. To think one knows what's going on when one doesn't know is a cancer that infects everything. Only he who recognizes this disease as a disease can cure himself of the disease. The wise man's way of curing their own disease also consists in helping other people recognize their own arrogant ignorance as an ailment and helping them cure it. Dada Jean 71. In approaching the Tao Te Ching debatably dated somewhere in the 300s BC, it's best to keep a lot of things at the back of your head. I'll relate it to you like this. Christianity's holy book, the New Testament, was largely written in Greek by and for Jews 2,000 years ago from the day I write this. And though much of the concepts are straight ahead universal truths, to read it in its entirety with our modern minds and respective languages and cultures 
we are bound to lose some understanding in the translations or fail to grasp all the cultural thought processes that its writers didn't have to spell out to its audiences. Whole denominations have sprung up and bloody wars have been declared from misunderstandings and mistranslations of a book set to establish the lion laying down with the lamb kingdom of God. If you're an American and have ever watched an American comedy with a foreign friend, you'll certainly realize how much of its hilarity is not universal, unless the context and cultural references are known and explained. Some cultures don't find catastrophes that occur in the restroom very funny, but Americans find it very hilarious. <laughs> and this is very difficult to explain to someone from a culture who equates bowel mishaps with loss of social stature, which might lead to his family being shunned into starvation and or prostitution. <laughs> anyway, though there are some straight-up unclouded truths in the Taoist writings as well, there's also some with a timestamp. These observations and tales were written in a particular time that had not only its own and then current happenings in culture, but 3,000 years of Chinese history up to that time as a point of reference. It's so overwhelming that it's difficult for even modern Chinese folks to grasp every nuance and obvious fact that went without saying when the Dao Jia was formulated. Getting a good translation of these works with tons of footnotes is a great way to begin grasping its essence. So back to all that's written between the lines in Lao Tzu, Lie Tzu, and Zhuangzi's works, here's a few things to always keep in mind at the back of your head. Confucius. Yes, him again. This sage, whose name is way better known in the West than Lao Tzu's, though mostly for fortune cookie sayings that he most certainly did not say, was also trying to figure out what the Tao, or the true way, was. He used that same term. He wasn't a bad guy, in spite of everything we're going to say about him in a minute. One of his true sayings sounds pretty familiar to us. Quote, What you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. Unquote. But regarding his philosophy... In a nutshell, he felt his own time's societal failings came about from failing to recognize certain behavior and rituals that were dominant in the supposedly morally purer past. He was obsessed with bringing order to what might have looked like, to him, a chaotic society. So, one of his prescriptions for dealing with a messy world was hierarchy. As I mentioned before, emperor over people, man over wife, mother over children, grown son over aging mother, and so on, if everyone would assume the responsibility of leading and being led, a peaceful cohesiveness would follow. But it must be noted that Confucius implored those who he put over others to be just and truthful, which should have made the system work. But when the guy in charge of everything might end up being an idiot, or greedy, or a jackass, or owning any number of unappealing traits, well, things fall apart and chaos returns, albeit in the ruled over people's minds and hearts. So naturally, the ambitious enthusiastically honed in on specific parts of the Confucian way that benefited them and not on the parts that would have limited their party time, everybody do what I say, desires. But in addition to the license to be bossy, many of those in the government and upper class put all their effort into the rights, facial expressions, colors of clothing, and timing Confucius prescribed as being part of the righteous life. What appearance you kept up became a clear-cut sign of an upright individual. Understandably, these outward indicators were easier to accomplish than the murky subjectiveness of truth, compassion, and justice, which he also advocated. Of course, this is something all of humanity has had to deal with since forever. I remember again growing up in church with believers whom held good intentions yet would often get distracted by the unimportant aspects of what they thought was the essence of serving God. 
dressing and looking a certain way seem to be a visible proof as to the state of one's soul. Same with using certain often vaguely defined words while praying or speaking of God. Uh, phrases like, give it to God, God is in control, God has blessed me, were all catchphrases of which I could hardly find anyone that could give me a satisfactory definitions as to their meanings, and yet the folks who used them were highly revered. Raised hands during congregational singing, obeying authority even when they were clearly in the wrong, memorizing the order of the books of the Bible, and so on. These obsessions were all the devil's distractions, if you'd ask me, getting our energy and minds off of deep understandings of God and His universe, figuring out how to love difficult, hateful people, and helping others who are in the depths of despair and poverty. And as I write this, in the Western culture, there is a cancer of speech codes, responsible speech, safe spaces, and political correctness, a phrase that first came about during the early days of the Soviet Union. Speech in agreement with the communist doctrine at that moment was correct. The correctness changed depending on who was at the top of the heap of dead bodies and what their mood was, but the result was that millions were imprisoned or executed for not speaking correctly. So at least in America, there hasn't been a genocide of misspeakers yet, but there's been consequences ranging from boycotts, firings, and rising occurrences of physical violence and intimidation. All of it as misguided, tragic, and tyrannical. Isn't that one of the dinosaurs? It is. It's my favorite one. Tyrannical Rex? Yeah, he was very bossy. Tyrannical as much as Confucius's prescriptions were ultimately used against the ancient Chinese for punishment, suppression, and blacklisting, though wearing a more civilized face, so to speak, than we Westerners. At their heart, many of those who are going around demanding, quote, right speech are in their minds trying to make the world a better, less hostile place, perhaps, as was Confucius. But when one group attempts to control another group, the culture begins turning black and blue from all the strangulation. According to the Tao Te Ching 57, the wise man says, quote, As long as I do nothing, the people transform naturally. I rest in stillness, and the people go straight naturally. I do not interfere in affairs, and the people grow rich naturally. I desire to not desire, and the people return to simplicity, becoming like an uncarved block. A lot of times when Lao Tzu was talking about the wise man, he was often talking about the leader or, or somebody in charge or something. So mm -hmm. there's that, the sage. There was a very rich man who worked his servants very hard. One of the elderly servants found his duties torturous, but every night he would dream he was king of the country, living in ease and luxury. The man would often say to those who pitied him, Although half of my life is in cruel toil, the other half is in joy. Why should I complain? The rich man, although living in the good life, had terrible dreams at night about being an oppressed servant. When he asked a wise friend about this, the friend said, Your dreams are true to the order of the universe. Pain and happiness change into each other in due time. It is impossible to be either constantly happy or constantly miserable. After that, the rich man decided to make his servants' lives less miserable. As a result, his nights became less horrific, as did the old servant's waking life. From King Mu of Zhou by Lietze. Enter my second year in China, where Peter became the next guy to try to help me on my Taoist quest. He wanted to take me to Lao Tzu's birthplace which he at least confirmed with some scholars exactly where it was. We took a decent train, then a banged-up crowded bus 
in that general direction, where along the way Peter mentioned, My hometown is about an hour from here, and my mom wants us to visit first. Well, as you might guess, we never made it to Laos's hometown, but we did at least step foot on the edge of the old master's former stomping grounds, only to have to get back on the opposite bus to come back to catch the return train that we had already bought a ticket for and blah, blah, blah. Between being delayed by the mom visit, some bad information from the bus driver, and some other factors, our timing was ultimately out of sync with our desire to see Laos's home. All the same, Peter and I kept laughing the whole way back, considering my terrible luck thus far. Some other people claimed that they were going to help me get to this elusive place, but they all flaked out or died. It remained a particular point of contention for Peter, and so finally came my third year in China, whence he announced we were going to try to get to Laos's home again. And although my young friend threw up some spicy noodles and chicken feet he had eaten all over the bus floor. Oh, God. We still, Are you serious? Well, I'm serious. Oh, we God. still managed to arrive at our desired destination. And I got to say something about that. Peter's a very kind guy. Most, I hate to say it, it's just the way it is. Most Chinese don't give a crap about it. They spit on the floor, on the bus, on the train. Uh, they throw up, they don't clean it up. But Peter's a, a good guy, and he actually went to the bus driver and asked could he clean it up. And I was glad because it, the smell was kind of getting to me, and it didn't affect anybody else around us. Oh, <laughs> they just kind of—they kind of looked at it like, "Well, there it is." I know you wanted me to visit you, but it never would have happened. Oh, man, we would have had so much fun. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we got to see a museum built supposedly around where the Lee family farm was, and there was several buildings, temples, and walls with carvings and inscriptions paintings, etc., all celebrating the words and influence of this unlikely revolutionary. And by the way, everything was fairly brand new. All the temples, all the huts and everything. It was built probably in the last couple of years. In fact, they even people debate whether he, he was even born there. Mm. I think I mentioned before, there's another province that claims he was born over there. So there was nothing left. They don't even know if the guy even existed. So the chances of anything real being there, and I knew that going into it, but right. as I discuss later part of it's just that quest of you know i gotta go gotta go at least have a look around but back to the museum and the wall they had all these things about lalza in its discussion of modern times the usa's own president ronald reagan got a shout out for quoting lalza in one of his state of the union addresses the thing that he quoted was running the government should be like cooking a small fish don't overcook it and as always looking for the unexpected disappointments and there's sometimes wonderful benefits for some reason, the one restroom at the museum was chained up. We and some other bladder-holding patrons all proclaimed, ayah, the Chinese sound of frustration, except for one old woman who just hobbled behind the nearest bush, dropped trowel, <laughs> and replicated the sound of a broken water pipe. Right in front of you guys? Yep. The bush didn't have enough leaves for my taste, and I think it was Peter's maiden introduction to the female anatomy. <laughs> Cause I remember he, I never forget he, he he when he saw her he was like, wow, you guys should just went over and peed behind her. <laughs> that is fantastic. The evening I got home from our successful journey, upon reflection, <laughs> I had to admit that in the end I hadn't really acquired any more insight into the Tao. And so some of that accomplisher's remorse began to creep in my mind. But as I would soon learn, my Taoist pursuits weren't over just yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so we'll hopefully pick back up here in a few weeks. Appreciate you all sticking with us this far. And really, if you have any thoughts or see where I might have needed some correction on some point, by all means, shoot me an email at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. I'd love the feedback. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! <laughs> <laughs>